When our four kids were young, Tina and I used a Richard Scary chart that taped on the homeschool room wall to record their annual growth. And either from your own childhood or now that you've got children of your own, you no, no doubt remember uh, some similar benchmarking device. Perhaps it was a notch on the door jam or a, a wall with certain height marks or, you know, a photograph against the same background. Or, you know, by golly, today they have iPhone apps for these kinds of things. But it indicates their growth rate. In some years, the growth was slow and incremental. You know, you kind of wondered, are they ever going to make it? And then in other years, you couldn't believe how incredibly fast they grew. Our kids teach us a very simple but powerful lesson that growth comes in seasons. Now, today we're continuing our church's second 40-day adventure following the radical Jesus, and we're in a life seasons, uh, life-changing season of growth together uh, that coincides with historic observation of Lent will culminate in a celebration on Easter Sunday. Our expectations are rooted in three cornerstone prayers, first for ourselves and family, that we would experience Jesus in more personal and powerful ways. Secondly, for our five friends, We're praying that God would actually touch our five unchurched friends with his Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, for our church family and the communities in which we live, that God's kingdom of love and mercy and power would break through into our church family and the places we we live and serve. We're also studying through the entire Gospel of Mark uh, by reading two chapters a week. This week, looking at chapters 3 and 4. As, as we look at the subject of the real enemy exposed. As Lori indicated, we've suggested that in our 40-day adventure, we undergird our experience with some sort of fasting. I want to encourage you to hang in there, even when the devil assaults you in your mind, like, is this really worth it? Like, like what, uh, or maybe you've, you've made a commitment and failed, uh, struggled. Just go for it. Get back up, you know, dust yourself off. My, my hope is that the Holy Spirit, uh, compels you to, to, to conclude that you're as hungry for God as you are for that thing you're fasting. That's the whole point. And we'd love to hear your story. So write those down on your connect card. I'd like to read and share some of those even in the next weeks to come. Let's pray together. Good morning, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Um, You're beautiful. You are powerful. You are mysterious. You are uh, like moving in all kinds of ways. And and Lord, you, you never cease to amaze us. And so we say thank you. We say we love you. And we want our lives to more fully count for you and become like you. And so we welcome you here today. Reveal yourself to us through the pages of the gospel and the person of the Holy Spirit. And not just us, Lord, here, but but our kids right next door that are learning and growing and experiencing the radical Jesus too. Change us is our prayer in your name. Amen. In chapters 3 and 4, the gospel writer Mark continues to narrate the radical impact of Jesus's ministry, we, we see he's answering the question, what does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? Now, we've seen in the previous two chapters, Jesus focused forgiveness and healing in himself, thereby threatening the temple, the priesthood, and the whole sacrificial system. He included unclean, sinful outsiders as he welcomed Levi, the tax collector, into his inner circle, 
thereby threatening the Jewish laws of purity. He rejected the spiritual discipline of fasting, at least for the moment, and said, he said that his followers should feast as long as he, the bridegroom, is present with them, thereby threatening the Jewish laws of piety. And then he blessed and justified his disciples by uh, picking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, Sabbath, thereby threatening the whole Sabbath law. And so the whole structure of Judaism is being threatened and challenged by Jesus, the radical Jesus. Now, the words out that Jesus heals on the Sabbath, you remember in chapter 1 how he um, delivered a, a, a demonized man in the synagogue. It's one thing for an evil spirit to manifest itself. Jesus, you see, did not initiate that encounter. And his delivering of the man in the synagogue on the Sabbath could have been justified as dealing with the situation at hand. But now the people are actually wondering, will Jesus himself initiate a healing on the Sabbath, thereby breaking the Sabbath law? And so it's no wonder that we we read in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 2, Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So Jesus, always moved uh, by the sickness and plight and pain of people, had compassion on the man. Likely he had attended synagogue regularly. Jesus would have known who he was. And Jesus, fully intending to go public with this demonstration of his power and and kindness, asked the man to stand. And then he asked, what's God's intention on the Sabbath? Uh, What's the real intention of his character, his goodness, his grace uh, on this day? Is it to do good or to do evil, to to save life or to kill? And the answer to Jesus' rhetorical question is quite obvious. It's clear. God would have not given the Sabbath uh, to do evil or to kill. So the The audience is drawing the conclusion that to do good and to heal must be the will of God. It's his ultimate intention on the Sabbath. And then at Jesus's invitation, uh, the man stretched out his hand and the kingdom of God broke in uh, to the disorder of this fallen earth system. And he was healed instantaneously and completely. The kingdom came. Now, when I read that account this last week, I wondered, why wouldn't Jesus's enemies have been so touched that they would have had a change of heart? How could you deny that instantaneous, complete, miraculous intervention? Why wouldn't they rejoice that this crippled man uh, was now whole and restored? I mean, he was a son of Israel, likely their friend, he lived in the community. Uh, he was their fellow churchgoer. And, and no doubt he, he likely struggled to work and earn a living in that community because of his handicapped. Why? Well, they wouldn't because their hearts were stubborn and hard. In fact, they were so stubborn and so hard that they were angry enough to begin to plot to take Jesus' life. Now, we will see this polarity of responses throughout the balance of Mark's gospel. The coming of The king and his kingdom will bring salvation and healing and freedom and joy to some. And at the same time, it will bring conflict, exposing the darkness and hard-heartedness of others. Such is the coming of the kingdom. 
Now, last week, I, I, I suggested to you this uh, construct of the indicative imperative, where because of what God does, he calls us to respond. Um, and, and so I say we, we may want to do an indicative imperative exam, an I-I exam. And my I-I exam at this point in the gospel is, what does the coming of God's kingdom reveal in me? Is it gratefulness, uh, a deeper desire to love God and, and to see healing and restoration come? Or is there some pocket of hiddenness, you know, a jealousy for others or how, how God moves in the, in the lives of other people? Or is there anger that he hasn't answered my prayer or maybe some other corner of disappointment? What, what does the coming of the kingdom reveal in me? Well, let's continue in Mark's uh, gospel, the third chapter, picking up in verse 7. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You're the Son of God! But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. Now, this is one of those sweeping summary statements made by Mark in, a, in an attempt to pray, paint with a broad brush the, the incredible magnitude of the, of the ministry of Jesus. I see a couple of things here. First, the kingdom attracts a wide and diverse following. Those with real needs cut across all geographic, racial, religious, and social boundaries, don't they? And guess what? They are everywhere around us as well. Secondly, if the kingdom is among us, the sick will be healed and the demonized will be delivered. Now, fundamentally, healing and deliverance are the work of God's kingdom. God's rule is at, is, is at work restoring the fallen creation, making right what has been lost or broken or uh, oppressed or uh, deranged in, in every way. God's rule is at work reclaiming that which has been stolen and, and broken. But the kingdom, when it comes, has concrete, tangible benefits. People get healed. People get delivered. People experience love and joy and peace in a way they didn't before. And Jesus is not just saving mystical and invisible souls to go to heaven, whatever that is. The kingdom coming has tangible, concrete, Benefit. Third thing that I see is that the kingdom will always be contested. Resistance rages when people are actually being set free and delivered. There's always going to be pushback. And the enemy uses three things. Temptation. Secondly, opposition in both circumstances and people. And thirdly, actual demonization coming under the influence of demonic spirits. Now here... In this case, the demons were mockingly identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Now, it's helpful to remember that to the Jew, uh, this was the title that belonged to the Messiah. And the demons know who he is. How do they know that? Well, the demons have access to heavenly truth, and here's why. You see, before they were cast to earth in their rebellion, 
uh, in joining with Lucifer against God, it's likely that the demons were angels who lived present with God the Father in the presence of Jesus, worshiping him. But in the rebellion against God, they were cast to the earth. And at that moment, they, they, they were now prisoners of the devil. You can read about the hierarchy of that kingdom in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, the sixth chapter. And they now mock and fear Jesus, but they know that their end is coming. They know that God has come in the person of Jesus to overthrow their revolt. Those same demons are still kicking and screaming today. They they wreck havoc, stealing, killing, destroying, binding people, God's people in fear and slavery and addiction because they know their, their end fate. Now, the good news of the gospel and that what Jesus was teaching and demonstrating is that God's people can be set free from the real enemy, the real, though often unseen enemy, Satan and his demons. And the good news for you today, too, is that you can be free where the enemy has you bound in fear or slavery or addiction or sin. You can be set free. Now, in the calling of the 12 apostles, as we move on to Mark 3, verses 13 and 19, Mark intentionally makes a connection to, uh, to Jesus and the second uh, the Moses, as Jesus as the second Moses. Mark begins his gospel, remember, by quoting Isaiah's prophecy uh, in announcing the final fulfillment of the exodus of God's people, that God will deliver them from slavery into the shalom of the new age, the new era. And now Mark is identifying Jesus as the new Moses who will lead Israel out, not out of bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, but rather out of bondage to the the king of oppression, Satan himself, in this evil kingdom of darkness. As Moses went up with the 70 elders on the mountain of Israel, now Jesus goes up the mountain with his 12. As Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel that identified God's people, so now Jesus appoints 12 apostles, and he redefines, reconstitutes God's people. And these actions would have spoken very clearly and very profoundly to that original audience. We miss the scope and impact of, of, the, of the calling of the 12 up on the mountain because we're not Jewish people who don't understand its history. But Jesus called the 12 apostles. Now, interestingly, the word apostle is a technical term that was used by the rabbis of the day as a title uh, to someone whom they sent with their authority. In other words, the sending rabbi was considered fully present in the apostle or the one cent. And that one cent would be treated as if he were the rabbi himself. Probably the best word to help us today actually understand this concept is the word ambassador. So, you know, once appointed, an ambassador fully represents the United States in a foreign country. They, they live under our laws. They speak and act uh, on behalf of our government uh, and in all matters of legal and civil and political dealing as full representatives of the United States. And so, likewise, the apostles, they speak and act with full authority of Jesus the King who sent them 
Now, unlike other apprentices who would withdraw with their rabbi for times of more formal instruction, Jesus took this mixed bag of 12 profoundly and radically different, uneducated, everyday, ordinary men, and he sent them out. They were not to withdraw. They were sent out to show and to tell, to proclaim and to demonstrate the works of their rabbi, King Jesus. And that's why in this text, he tells them to preach the kingdom and to cast out demons. He's giving them instruction to show and tell, preach and demonstrate. Preach the gospel, cast out devils. Now, the Apostle Paul echoes our calling as ambassadors in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And so we are followers, ambassadors, little a, apostles, because of God's call. Not because there was something intrinsically great or good about us that he saw, oh, look how attractive they are. Look how gifted they are. Look how good they would be for my kingdom. No, he, he says, look, look how power, how powerless and foolish and despised and counted as nothing they are. That's what qualifies us to be ambassadors for God. Now, Jesus initiates, we respond. That's what you did when you heard the call of the gospel, when at some point in your journey, you said, I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to be a full, full on follower of Jesus. Jesus initiated that wasn't because of your goodness or or attractiveness, or giftedness, but because of God's love for you. And then we responded. There's that indicative imperative again, okay? But having responded, we're now all deputized as little a apostles. The apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal to the world through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's our message. You belong to God. You matter to God. And you can trust God. Now, it's true that not many of us are actually going to stand in a pulpit and preach, but we are all bearers of the good news, aren't we? We're ambassadors of the good news. We speak for Jesus, and we've all been sent out as an ambassador. You're sent out where you live, where you work, where you play, where you go to school, where you shop, where you eat out, where you buy your gas, where you where you do life. You're you're an ambassador. We're 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 sent out to announce the good news that Jesus the King is actually alive and that his kingdom is present. And we're to announce to people that uh, you know what, you do matter to God. That that you you uh, you belong to him. And that you can come back to him and you can trust him for your life. And so we're, we're, we're saying the three highest needs that you have for love and significance and security can actually be met in Jesus. That's the fundamental message as ambassadors that we carry. 
Now, in my I-I exam, I would, I would ask myself, how might I more fully function as an ambassador who speaks and acts with the authority of Jesus? Now, in the balance of Mark chapter 3, he reports that Jesus and the twelve um, receive a mixed reaction from the crowd, the religious leaders, and then Jesus' family. First, the crowd. The crowd is huge. It's relentless. Oh, that was cool. Did you hear that? Like, you notice the drum set today, you know, brand new edition there. It just had this cool little echo in there. Okay. So I'll, I'll do that again in case you miss it. It was huge. Did you hear that? Jesus and the 12 are at the high point of their popularity. You know, uh, they are so overrun that Mark tells us that they didn't even have time to eat. People's needs are being met. Uh, their lives are being touched. Their hopes are being stirred in a way that nothing else has ever happened. It's the best show in town, baby. And you wanted to be there. And that's the pressure that we begin to feel, the swelling, maddening, crazy crowd. We know very, very little of this kind of response to the king and his kingdom. No, really, we can only read about these kinds of seasons of powerful revival in the world and in American history, in the history books. You know, times when the Holy Spirit's power was poured out and people responded this way. So in the United States, in a time when historians call the Great Awakening before the Revolutionary War, you may have heard of Anglican evangelist George Whitfield who preached to tens of thousands of people. And in his meetings, it's reported that sinners would be struck down in agony and they would cry out to God for forgiveness. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit was so tangibly present. In fact, Whitfield is personally responsible for having uh, really changed the atmosphere in the 13 original colonies. The Jesus People movement of the 60s and 70s saw hundreds of thousands of artists and hippies and musicians and counterculture people find authentic faith outside the walls of the traditional church in a sweeping move of the Holy Spirit that swept up some of you. Some of you are the product of the Jesus People movement. And it had um, world-changing results. It gave birth to what is known now as the Vineyard Movement. And so we're actually, in, in a way, the product of the Jesus people movement of the 60s and 70s. But it is true that we are still awaiting the same and greater works ministry that Jesus said is coming in John 14, 12. But my I.I. exam at this portion in the text would go something like this. Why don't the crowds today find church or us as Christians equally as attractive as they did Jesus. Why is that? Second uh, reaction it has to do with the religious leaders. Now, they're not denying that Jesus is performing miracles. In this sense, they're not naturalists. They are not uh, operating with an anti-supernatural bias like many people do today in the modern era, saying that the era of miracles is past. Rather, the Jewish leaders are just saying, well, no, he's on the dark side. In no way is Jesus walking with God. Here's how they reasoned. God would never violate his own piety and purity laws. God would never violate his own Sabbath law by working 
on the Sabbath and refusing to rest. So if Jesus is not on God's side, he must therefore be on the devil's side. And so they concluded that Jesus was demon-possessed. So now Jesus, his response was uh, to this charge was another rhetorical question. You get that, that Jesus seldom answered questions? He just answered them with another question. And the question implies an obvious negative response. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? The obvious answer is he can't. And then he illustrated the impossibility with three uh, scenarios. A divided kingdom, he says, civil war spells doom. A divided house, Abraham Lincoln actually didn't invent that quote, the house divided. He got that from Jesus, just in case you were wondering. Household rivalry rips families apart. Thirdly, a divided devil. A divided devil can't stand. His end has come. And then Jesus makes his application in verse 27 in this mysterious, enigmatic verse that people have wrestled with for generations. Verse 27, who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone who is even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. As clearly as I can understand it, here's what Jesus is saying. Satan is the strong man. He is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He rules this world in its present state. 1 John 5.19, John says, The world around us is under the control of the evil one. Satan, the strong man, has a house full of possessions or people. Usurped though they are, they are his goods. And because he's strong and mean, he'll not freely let go of his goods. The only way to take them is to bind him or tie him up, and then his goods can be taken. Jesus has been setting people free from demons, and in this sense, he has been tying up the strong man. He has been restraining the devil, and he's been exercised divine authority over him by driving him out. And he's now plundering his house by reclaiming people and carrying them off as possessions for the kingdom of God. Friends, we don't bind the devil by saying, I bind you, devil. We bind the devil the way Jesus did it, by actually doing the works of Jesus. That's how you bind the devil. Not by saying something, but by actually doing something the way Jesus did it, by healing, delivering, Forgiving, restoring, bringing the kingdom of God to people is how you bind the devil. That's what Jesus is teaching. And then Jesus gave one of the hardest words he ever delivered. He said, all matter of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. And we can thank God for that today. That all matter of our sin and lawlessness and and wickedness and foolishness and the rottenness that it brings that his mercy and grace is going to cover all of that. That's the beauty and simplicity and the radicalness of the gospel. We get what we don't deserve. But then Jesus said, there is one unpardonable sin. Seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in liberating captives, healing the sick, and setting people free, and concluding that is from the devil. Jesus said there's no forgiveness there. Now, the balance of the Bible teaches clearly that it's not that it's impossible for God to forgive that, but it's that light can't penetrate a heart that is that hard. 
That is to say, there is no forgiveness because those people have no inkling or desire for it. Through the years, I've ministered to dozens of people who feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin. Maybe you do too. Maybe you've wrestled with that issue today. And I can I can assure you that if you're worried that you've committed it, it's proof that you haven't. Because those who have committed it have no desire. Their heart is hard. There's not an inkling or a shred of desire or concern about Jesus and God and all that stuff because it's all a bunch of hooey to them. And so their hard-heartedness gives evidence that there's no forgiveness. It's not that God's power can't touch that. It's that they're beyond hope. They've crossed over. The guilty have no concern or desire. Now, my eye I examine as I reflect on this portion of Mark's gospel is this. How am I doing in binding the strong man and plundering his house? And is there any aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that I find offensive or off-putting that I'm attempted to attribute as false or counterfeit or even demonic? Well, uh, lastly, we see the reaction of Jesus' family. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Can you identify? Your family thinks, you know, his family thought, well, he's out of control. I mean, we know Jesus. We saw him grow up. He never made these claims or did any of these kinds of crazy things when he was young. He's deluded. He's even hearing voices. He's lost it. There will be times in our obedience to Jesus and surrendering to Jesus, the warrior king, and following his purposes for our life, that our family will think we are crazy. And Jesus then asked, well, who who are my mother and brothers? And then he made another dramatic move. He he stood there and looked at that circle of followers right there seated around him, and he answered his own question in verse 34. Look, these are my mother and brothers, Jesus said. Anyone who does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This is Jesus' new family, his recreated family. Anyone who does the will of God. And friends, this is so encouraging because it means we can all step into God's family. You don't get in there anymore through by biology uh, uh, or birth order or intelligence or belonging to a certain family or race or religion or having money or status or good works. None of that stuff matters. Everybody has access to be in the family of God. That is incredibly encouraging. Now, this is shocking and revolutionary to the original hearers. And here's why. There goes Jesus being all radical again. Why? Well, central to Jewish piety and identity is honoring your father and your mother. The family defines life for the Jew. Uh, the good, legitimate son inherits the faith and vocation and land and blessing of his father and then extends it to the next generation. And Israel only survives if this succession happens unbrokenly. And here, Jesus is challenging the whole structure, thus dismantling Jewish life. In a way, Jesus is acknowledging that family has become an idol, because idols control and define your destiny rather than God. And so here Jesus calls us to hate our mother and our father in order to follow him. On another occasion, he said by warning that the members of your household are going to be the ones that stand against you. Jesus is radical 
Because he's saying you must never allow family to keep you from fully following me. This is challenging, isn't it? Even the commandment to honor our mother and father comes after the commandment, the first commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to have no other gods before him. Now, of course, this isn't the end of the story, because we see after the resurrection, Jesus' family later was reconstituted and were believers. And we can hold out uh, for our family in the same manner, maybe not even within the span of our lifetime, but that they too will come back to a belief in, in Jesus. But my eye I exam at this point in the text is, is there any way that my family is impeding my full commitment to do the will of God and where I need God's help to do that? Now, this dynamic inbreaking of God's kingdom rule, demons being cast out, leprosy being healed, sins forgiven, tradition being overturned, turned, Sabbath being broken, all the opposition that is created is the backdrop for the teaching section that Mark launches into in Mark 4, where we discover uh, four, but we're going to look at three of the parables, the kingdom parables. I remind you that parables uh, are not two bulls. They're actually stories for employing figures and imagery oh, yeah. from everyday ordinary life with which the audience would have been familiar. And like Velcro, they have a, these stories have incredible sticking power in our mind. You hear them once, you remember them. Serve two purposes. Number one, they reveal truth to those who are spiritually hungry and open. Uh, they, they spark our imaginations. They stir our emotions. But they also, secondly, conceal truth. Jesus' truth is shrouded in symbolism so that those whose hearts are hard cannot see and understand. A message of life to some, a message of death to others. The first parable of the farmer scattering seed is basically this. There's going to be a mixed reaction to the kingdom. And then he illustrates it four ways. It's like seed on a footpath, some seed is immediately snatched by the devil. Like seed on shallow and rocky soil, some respond quickly but soon wilt because of either persecution or trouble. Like seed on thorny soil, some people respond, but then their life gets choked out by worries and cares, a desire for money, or the lust of other things. And then fourthly, Jesus said, some seed is going to actually fall on good, rich, fertile soil, and it will produce a varying amount of crops. And so he's reiterating that the kingdom gets mixed results. It faces great resistance. But don't lose heart. Why? Because there is a harvest coming. And in light of that, ultimately, this parable is a call to action. Continue scattering seed. Don't calculate your ministry too thoroughly. You know, prudence and planning are good and careful foresight, for, for, foresight and stewardship of resources is good. But, but you know, uh, don't be captive to that stuff. Just keep scattering seed. Put up with the opposition and the apparent failure because there is a harvest coming. Where does the Holy Spirit want us to be more fully cooperative by sowing more seed? The second parable is the parable of the growing seed. Jesus teaches that the kingdom expansion is a mystery. The farmer doesn't know how the seed grows. Even today, botanists don't really know, technically, how seeds grow. And so is kingdom growth. We plant, we water, God gives the increase. He's the only one that can make a seed grow. And so it's basically as if Jesus were telling us, you know what? Quit trying to be in charge. Just trust me. You know, Give up control. Quit trying to figure everything out. Trust me, 
embrace this mystery and process. The kingdom of God is mysterious and it is a process. He says, first a blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and then the grain ripens. And so don't judge God's work with your eyes. If you did, all of us would have judged Jesus's ministry as a tragic failure. Our, our call is to be faithful, not to be successful. We're to embrace the mystery and the growth of the kingdom. The harvest is in God's hands. It's on his timetable. This means on some occasions, we will actually get to reap what others have sown for years or generations. In other cases, we will sow what others, years or decades later, will continue to reap. How do I need to be more trusting that God's kingdom is both a mystery and a process? And then in the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus teaches us uh, to, to not despise these small beginnings. So he is so counter to Jewish expectations. Here's how. The Jews actually expected God to vindicate them. He was going to send the warrior king like David, drive out the oppressive Romans into the sea, cleanse the land, glorify the temple, return to Jerusalem to set up shop. The apostles were wanting their condos. You know, can I sit on your left and right hand? Uh, he, he was going to, like, invite all the dispersed Jews to come back to the homeland. And he was even going to give a seat at the table to Gentiles. And what does Jesus offer? A seed. A dead, dry, lifeless, almost imperceptible seed of the smallest kind, a mustard seed. And then Jesus said, that's what my kingdom is like. How absurd to the audience. That's because Jesus is radical. He takes all of our worldly and religious values and turns them upside down. The seed has within itself the capacity for growth. And once it's planted, it starts slowly, almost invisibly, but ultimately, pervasively, it slowly grows to become one of the biggest plants in all of the garden. And Jesus said, that's what my kingdom is like. That tiny seed has unlimited potential. So how do I need to more fully embrace the foolishness of the mustard seed and not despise those small beginnings? One last story. We're wrapping it up. Jesus, uh, it's a famous story of Jesus stilling the storm. And in this, in this story, Mark is exposing the real enemy. That's what we've been talking about all morning. At the conclusion of an exhausting day of ministry, Jesus instructed the apostles to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, because of its geography, this body of water uh, was particularly vulnerable to squalls coming up. And that's exactly what happened. The waves began to fill the boat. It was a small wooden fishing craft that was designed particularly to easily pull nets of fish over the low sides. Jesus, being fully human, exhausted after a day of ministry, was asleep. And they were alarmed at his indifference. Did you notice what they asked? Don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus wakes up. First, he has to deal with the storm. He spoke to the wind and the waves. Silence, be still, or literally, be muzzled. Interestingly, it's the same language that Mark says he used to expel the demon in the synagogue in Mark 1. And it suggests to me that Jesus is not dealing with nature gone amuck, but with the dark and threatening powers of evil that are now behind the storm. The devil is out to drown Jesus and his friends. Now, please understand, it doesn't mean that the devil is behind every storm, but the devil can certainly use natural events to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And then having rebuked the storm, Jesus turned to rebuke his followers. Why are you afraid? Of course they're afraid. They're going to die. (laughs) Do you have no faith? No, we don't have an ounce of faith, actually. Jesus clearly expected that their faith would rise above the natural circumstances, their fears. After all, he's right there with them in the boat. And at the one moment, first overwhelmed by the storm, now they are overwhelmed by Jesus. And they say, who is this man? Jesus wants to probe and confront us, challenge our fears, ultimately our lack of faith and trust in him. He wants to challenge our limp worldviews that don't look at him as sufficient to deal with us in our life circumstances, challenging and threatening as they might be. He promises to never leave us or forsake us until his mission for our life is complete. Can we trust him with that? Well, friends, um, next week we're going to look at chapters 5 and 6, several of the most dramatic stories the Gospels record And I'm joining with you and asking Jesus to give us fresh eyes and fresh fresh faith as we follow the radical Jesus. Lord, wow, these stories just challenge almost every religious convention in our bodies. Jesus, help us to discard our preconceptions about who you are and what you want us to be and to more fully follow you. You are really radical. I pray for grace, Lord, for our church family to... Follow you as the warrior king to show and tell what it means that your kingdom is actually here. Give us grace, Lord, in the ways that you've provoked and challenged us today. And now receive our gifts, Lord. Let them be tokens that we want our life to count for you. In your name. Amen.